waiting. And we're live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wine, Women, and Words. I'm Michelle, and with me, of course, is Diana. And tonight, we have the author of The Undesirables, which has been our book of the month for May. We're in May. Uh, Chad Thuman. Now, am I butchering your last name? No, you're, you're pronouncing it perfectly. I'm very impressed. Excellent. I usually, I usually get Thurman, so... <laughs> That's what my phone always tries to correct it to when I'm typing it. I'm like, no, I know how to spell it, damn it. <laughs> so welcome, Chad. Um, as we explained um, before we went live, uh, we have a whole list of questions. Mm -hmm. I printed them out so I wouldn't have to keep flipping back and forth through screens. Right. Um, but... I, so we were talking a little bit about this before. Um, this month has been super crazy for me, so I haven't had the time that I usually do to, to read. Usually I'll, I'll try reading at night after my kids go to bed, and that didn't really happen this month. So I woke up at 4.30 in the morning to be able to finish it, and the ending kind of blew my mind a little bit, but we won't talk about that right now. Okay. But I do have questions about that. Sure. Um, so, but it's a, an amazing book. It, it sucked me in and all the characters, I, I mean, I loved Peter from the beginning. Bobby grew on me, was not a huge fan of Bobby at the beginning. Um, well, I was, I, was about to, I was about to interrupt and say, well, what about my favorite part of this podcast? But you telling me that you love the book is actually my new favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> But I was going to ask, what are you guys drinking tonight? <laughs> well, we can do that, too. Yes. <laughs> I just opened up a new bottle. That's why I was running a little bit late, because I had to decide which bottle I wanted. And I went with um, the Four Sisters of Shiraz, um, which is one of my favorite blends, I have to say. And I, um, I had been waiting for this to go on sale at Target because I really liked the label, but I wasn't going to spend, you know, a whopping $20 on a bottle of wine. Um, but I'm drinking a Pinot Noir called Prophecy. I really like the label. That is a cool label. Um, what are you drinking this evening? I, I'm drinking brandy. I figure it's Ooh. close enough to wine, mm. right? Yes. But, uh, you know, liquor is quicker, so <laughs> That's had, true. To, had to go there. I like brandy, but it has a tendency to make me cranky. Really? Oh, we don't want cranky, Diana. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I was on this John le Carre kick, and they're always, like, Smiley is always drinking brandy with, with the whole circus. So that's what led me to – I had never tried brandy, and I tried it because I tend to drink whatever characters I'm reading at the time are drinking. And I actually really liked it. So now, much to my wife's chagrin, <laughs> I, am, uh, I drink brandy almost every night. So Brandy well, with this is really good. If we were drinking what characters were drinking in the book, we'd be doing vodka. And I definitely can't do vodka. So I'm glad yeah. that. I'm with you. I, I can't do vodka either. I discovered a tiki drink made with vodka that I really like. It's called the Chi Chi, and it's um, 
It's like pineapple and vodka and some other fruity flavors. So of course, naturally you don't taste the vodka. So I love it. There was like, there was a period of time in my early twenties when I thought vodka was my best friend and it was not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's, that is oddly similar to my story. <laughs> <laughs> There's there a certain number of, of hangovers that you have when you start to realize I might need to change this. Yeah. Not that, you know, I was a raging alcoholic or anything, but, you know, early 20s. <laughs> that comes with the territory, pretty much. So, so, are you going to start with your first question, Michelle? Sure. Because um, I feel like I've already picked Chad's mind a lot, because we did an interview on the blog, and then he was at the literary festival. So, I'm letting you take the lead on a lot of these questions. And I'm just going to hop around. Hopefully it. this will be as fun as the literary festivals. I hope so, too. I do, too, because I really i am still very sad that I couldn't be there. <laughs> so, well, we checked question number one off the list, which was, what are you drinking? <laughs> um, it's really one of the most important questions it of, is. of the show. Um, but what I thought was really interesting is just the, the whole premise of your book and it being set in Russia during World War II. Um, I have most of the World War II historical fiction novels that I've read are you know set in France or um, you know, in Hawaii post Pearl Harbor. Um, this is really one of the first books that I've come across that are set in Russia. And what made you focus your novel on in that area? Well, when I was at um, when I was at grad school, uh, I wasn't studying World War II or Russia or anything like that. I was studying colonial Latin America of all things. Hmm. But I, well, I saw this movie called Smoke. Right? I'm sure you've, you've probably heard of it. With I think Harvey Keitel in it, and he tells this one story about this writer in Leningrad who, uh, uh, you know, had his sort of life's work that he was working on when the siege happened and he was trapped in Leningrad. And he ended up smoking his life's work, basically tearing out the pages and using oh them God. As, uh, <laughs> rolling papers, right? So being an aspiring writer at the time, that really fascinated me, like, oh my God, what could, you know, First of all, is this story true? And what could possibly motivate someone to take their life's work, their masterpiece, and smoke it, you know, apart from hardcore nicotine addiction, which is <laughs> fairly obvious. But it it sort of it sort of sparked my mind. And um, I found the little section in the university research library at UCLA that had a lot of material on, uh, on, on Russia and World War II. And oddly, I didn't find anything particularly on Leningrad, but I found this little book of short propaganda pieces that were published by the Pravda newspaper, the sort of propaganda mouthpiece of the Soviet Union at the time about Stalingrad. And I mean, they were just, they, they just absolutely fascinated me because they were sort of like, uh, how do I describe them? They were like, oh, you know, normally, you know, Ivan was a man of peace, a simple arithmetic teacher, you know, in the 
in you know in the far east of Siberia, but when the when the you know German fascists came and tried to take away his country, he picked up a rifle and went to Stalingrad. You know, like those were kind of the introductions, but then they led into these true stories of what these you know very ordinary people were doing in these horrific circumstances. Um, so that book sort of made me fascinated about Russia in general during World War II. And so I began to research it more and more. Um, and I had this idea for what was really a short story in my mind at the time uh, that would take place in Leningrad that I felt like was sort of a, a exploring this theme of sort of romanticism and artistry versus, you know, practical survival, um, which was essentially the first chapter or the first first two Karen chapters in what eventually became the novel. But I didn't really have anything else. And um, uh, slowly, because I'm an old man, later, uh, some of these, I saw the eyebrow, Diana. Yeah, these, these, uh, these, you know, a lot of the old like KGB files started to become declassified with the fall of the Soviet Union, and um, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that they were available much more readily to to you know serious historians and scholars, but I didn't really catch on to them so much until sort of you know long after the new millennium and uh, slowly started to find out that, that some of some more information about what was going on in Leningrad was coming out and was, was reaching sort of the public, public sphere of knowledge. Um, and it rekindled my interest in the story. Um, and so, you know, that combined with the original theme that I still felt was very strong uh, as well as what I felt everything that I've learned about writing and storytelling since then um, led me to really have a desire to write this book and sit down and actually do it. Um, so ultimately, it came from a fascination of how terrible the war was and for for Eastern Europeans in general, and and a sort of realization in my mind that there was a disconnect between the way I, as an American, thought about World War II and conceived of it, and what was really happening in Eastern Europe, where it was such an unbelievably cataclysmic event. If that makes sense. That's one of the things I was um, talking to my mom about, about the book is, I mean, I'm not a huge history buff, but everything that I was kind of led to, you know, to, or taught about, about Russia and the war, it was basically Germany lost because they, underestimated the Russian winters and they, you know, weren't prepared for the two-front war. And it never really occurred to me how close Russia came to losing the war. 
Yeah, and and that's another that's another thing that fascinated me about the war in general, which is again as as an American growing up here learning and I loved war movies when I was a kid and I still do, you know. So um I've seen a ton of both historical and propaganda and everything in between and have loved it all. But it you because everything that I've come across has been written or created post-war, post-victory, it's kind of hard sometimes to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who, uh, uh, you know, in 1941, even in America, victory wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion. And it's a pretty, that was a pretty dangerous endeavor to set out upon. And I think you kind of have to have that mentality to hopefully understand, for example, why America was so reluctant to get into the war in the first place or at least why, you know, the public was. Um, and certainly, you know, Russia, it, they were, as, as you point out, you know, very close to losing the war. Um, their various places talk about, speculate on Stalin being suicidal that first winter. Yeah, I've never heard that. And it's, yeah, it's such a fascinating story. And that's why I think World War II historical fiction has been so popular is that there's so many stories that need to be told that haven't been told, like this story. Um, I think that was the thing that fascinated me the most uh, when I first read it was um, the, just what was happening in Leningrad during that time. Cause you never, we never heard about this. Russia was always, you know, perceived to be this powerhouse. Um, and Lisa, and that's how we, we were raised to think of it. And yeah, it's it's such a fascinating story. And um, one of the things that I love that, you know, the book itself touches on is just the um, the common people, the everyday person that rises to their situations, um, like Bobby's journey. As Michelle pointed out earlier, she didn't care for Bobby in the beginning. And I don't think many of us really do. Um, I think the only one that really comes off as being the most likable right from the get-go is Peter. And the other two, they're just so childish in the beginning. Well, and they are children, you know? Yeah, so, that's true. And, very, and, and very American children. Although, you know, I think Karen is somebody who, she's a child, but she's also someone who, who has had a little bit of her childhood taken from her, um, yeah. partially due to her extraordinary talent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think is intentionally childish as a result. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, absolutely. And, now you know, the composer, I was trying to find his name earlier and I can't remember his name. I know it starts with an S. Yes, yeah, Shostakovich. Yes. It's funny because ever I never heard his name before because I'm not really big on the classical music. But then after reading this book, it was like I've noticed his name pop up multiple times in like books or like a movie or something. Right. Like, oh, 
I know that guy. I don't yeah. like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault too. Yeah, um, I know. I, I should have, you know, maybe I should have made him more likable at the end. I, I, you know, my intention wasn't to make him a rap bastard. Certainly, Karen, Karen thinks he is at the outset. Um, I agree not, with her. He historically, he's not at all. So perhaps that's a bit unfair. Well, but, I think maybe he was just self-serving in the fact that he was really trying to just save his own skin. And of course, to everybody else, he comes off as a rap bastard. Now, was he actually there in Leningrad? He was. And, you know, I think that that's... I think that's part of the thing where, where part of the bit where perhaps Karen's view of him is a little bit unfair. I mean, um, because there was no, there was no real person who was Karen and there was no real person who was Karen's father, just mm -hmm. clear. But he was in Leningrad, he was trapped in Leningrad, uh, but he did, he was evacuated, he was airlifted out mm -hmm. of it. Um, and he finished his his composition out of Leningrad. Um, the thing that makes Karen hate him so much is that he encourages Karen's father to stay, and then a month later flies away, mm -hmm. which is perhaps unfair because Karen's father didn't really exist. So there's no such event in real life, yeah. you know. But still. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, my son went exactly. <laughs> well, I don't really blame him because, I mean, I, I think anyone who would have had the opportunity to get out would have, you know. Yes. It was Karen's dad that I would have, that I was very eager to reach into the book and smack him around a little bit. Yeah, I, yes, I would agree with that, yeah. Um, now, Shostakovich, like one of the seminal events of Leningrad that doesn't occur in the book because Karen is outside of Leningrad at the time she's already escaped by the time that it occurs. But that spring, uh, they play this, they play his symphony live in Leningrad. Um, and the musicians are starving at the time that they're playing it. Uh, but they have all of the, of the, of the, you know, the pub, I think I describe it in the book that they have these public address speakers strung up throughout the city so that, you know, when the city officials need to make some sort of declaration or when there's an air raid or anything of that sort, they can warn the citizenry or tell them or give them propaganda about what's going on, you know, which usually is lies. Um, but then they broadcast the Leningrad Symphony over that. Um, and it's just, you know, it's remembered as, as this great moment of human resistance in Russia today. So, you know, again, by not having that in the book, perhaps it makes him a little more of a less sympathetic character as well. Um, but uh, I'm just, you know, Please, all you lovers of, of, of him, don't, you know, don't string me up. I, I love him as well. It served, the, it served the purpose of the book to cast that particular way. Not everybody can be a hero. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think, of when, speaking of the, the propaganda that they would use, I think it's really interesting, and if 
I don't know if this was true or this is part of the book, how at first the, you know, the government officials tried to keep what was happening in Leningrad a secret and so so the the news couldn't get out that the citizens people were trapped and they were starving and they weren't allowed to leave and then they, at the end they kind of flipped it and turned them into yeah. martyrs for Russia I I I'm glad that you found that interesting because I I found that equally fascinating and you know I'm I'm working on the sequel right now which takes place in Stalingrad and it is Hold like, on, okay. hold on, hold on. Okay. <laughs> you can't casually drop that into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, did she not hear Michelle squeak? <laughs> okay, good. Well, great. But the, the, the reason I'm casually dropping it in is because it is such a 180-degree shift with Stalingrad where equally cynical and evil – that you know stalin gives this directive this not one step backward directive that doesn't just apply to soldiers in that city but also applies to civilians so civilians are not let out of stalingrad and the reason is because he learned through leningrad that martyrs make great propaganda mm -hmm. so the more civilians that were put in danger in stalingrad the better, the more people would rise up and hate the German invaders. So it, it is a fascinating, like, oh my gosh, we can't let anyone know how bad it is in Leningrad because they'll immediately surrender to, oh, actually that was the wrong policy entirely. And in fact, we should let everyone know exact, make, make things as bad as they possibly can be so that we, you know, engender sympathy and a desire for vengeance. You know, it's crazy. So now with the sequel, are we getting Bobby back too, or is it just going to be uh, Peter and Karen? I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, yeah, Bobby is a big part of it, yeah. Oh, okay. Good to know. And, and Jack and, and uh, yeah. Belle. And Jack. <laughs> Jack was probably, Duck and Jack. Now, I know Diana kind of like, badgered you about duck before she before you really knew who she was and she was just a crazy person on twitter well we had just um we just start talking about the literary festival and then all of a sudden he's getting these messages from me going you better not kill duck this better not be happening right now so he's probably thinking who is this crazy person what did i sign up for well obvious spoilers here but uh Duck is not coming back in, in the sequel, sadly. So he's the one character. I felt like, I felt like to bring him, there, there was a way that I could figure out how to bring him back, but I felt that was, I don't know, I like Duck too much. That's <laughs> a happy ending. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want yeah, to. Everyone that. deserves a happy ending. Yeah. So when, okay, so it, we're, obviously there at the point of the book. So if, if you really don't want to know what happens, like stop watching or don't listen for a little while. Mm -hmm. But I, so I text Diana maybe on Wednesday and I said, she's going to pick Bobby, isn't she? 
<laughs> and and then before she could reply, it was Wednesday morning at like six o'clock in the morning. I, I I look at my phone and I'm like, and I get the text. She's gonna pick Bobby, isn't she? The first immediate. Oh my God, nothing else is important right now. And then after, before she could reply, I said, I say this because they never pick the one I want them to pick. <laughs> so, you know, I get to the end and Peter goes and I'm pissed off that she's going to let him go back, even though I totally admire his patriotism and his, you know, desire to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. And the sacrifice. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> very mad about that. Did you always know that she was going to go back with him? Um, I did. I think I did. Um, I, uh, uh, I think that I left, I left the option in the back of my mind open for her to go back with Bobby. But I think I always, I you know, thematically, I think it was important for me thematically that she go back with with Peter because, or Petters, I guess how you pronounce it. But um, uh, she like thematically, her her arc is one where everything that she does at the beginning of the book is about survival and about practicality and. And that's one of the things that I admire so much about her at the beginning of the book. And she hates her father for being the exact opposite, which is everything he does is for some pie in the sky, romantic, artistic reason. Um, but then over the course of the book, I wanted her to make a decision. I wanted her to make a final fateful decision at the end of the story, whereby she, she chose completely impractical, the opposite of survival. Because, I mean, the way that she would survive is she would go back with Bobby. She would perhaps not live happily ever after, but she would live in the United States. She wouldn't be killed um, as compared to what she does decide, which is to return to hell, essentially. Um, and, I, you know, that that arc was very important for me. So if I were to be honest, yes, I always knew she was she was going to be going back with Petter. The hard part, the part that I didn't know was how I would motivate her to do so, whether that would hopefully cross my fingers be satisfying. I'm extremely glad to hear that that's what she wanted. <laughs> you know? It totally was because yeah. I was flipping through to see how many pages I had left. So, you know, you go like this, and while you're flipping, you kind of catch words here and there. Right. And right. I was deliberately trying not to read anything because I really didn't. Normally, I will go. I'll read the last paragraph of the last page because I want to know who's still alive at the end and of the I, book. And I tried to fake you out a little bit with the title of the last. Which the chapter. hardest goodbye? Yeah, thanks yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that while I was flipping, and I saw the name of the chapter, and it said the hardest goodbye, and I was like, oh crap. <laughs> ruined the book for myself. <laughs> so well played because that succeeded. Well, speaking of the chapters with the um, the chapter titles, that's one thing that I've always I, I liked about the book is that it's the different perspectives 
and we have you know the choir boy and the the cellist and the organ grinder and as you mentioned the hardest goodbye um and i know we've talked about this a little bit on the blog uh what kind of brought you to wanting to title the chapters well i've i've written it with each chapter most definitely following a certain perspective i mean i i I read Game of Thrones, and I'll admit straight out that I was a huge fan of that series. And um, it was a very strong influence on The Undesirables in terms of the way that that I set out to wrote it. So Game of Thrones sort of opened my eyes to, oh, you know what, you can write a novel this way. I've never read anything quite like that before. So structurally, I knew that I wanted to do that because it would keep me interested and keep me engaged and keep me writing. Um, my first draft had much more, um, you know, too clever for their own good titles to each chapter. Um, and uh, I think Diana, one of the things that you wrote on your, on the blog was that one of the problems that you have as a reader, when you're reading, point of view chapters is that you get confused mm -hmm. as, as you go. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was happening to some of my, my friends who I asked to, to read it at a, on an early stage. Mm -hmm. And um, so that motivated me to be like, oh, well, I really love these clever titles, but they're not working. What happened, you know? could I potentially fix this, this problem if I just title each chapter the character? So you know just straight away when you read that chapter, this is going to be from that person's, that character's point of view. And it's creative enough where it's not the specific character. So right. it's not Aaron and Bobby. It's, it creates that. And I hope, um, that, yeah, and I hope when you, when you, when you get to one where you're like, oh, the goat herd, I wonder what that, you know, is hope, I'm hope at least that it, you know, engenders a certain little level of curiosity in the, in, in the reader. Oh, it did. Um, but yeah, I mean, but ultimately, yes, the, I know I appreciate you saying that you still found that the chapter headings cool. Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately it was, it was really, I came to that conclusion that you came to on your blog much later than you did. And, but fortunately, I, I came to it. And but fortunately, before you published, you came to it, yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And as far as Duck is concerned, our... I was going to just bring up Duck because, yeah, we need, to, we need to talk about Duck for a little bit. Um, were there re was Russia really drafting dogs and training them as mind yeah. yes they were and sort of the traditional um point of view about them is the one that i wrote in the book that's sort of the mythology of them that it was sort of a typical early russian military boondoggle that um they were completely ineffective that the reason they were ineffective is because they were trained on Russian tanks, obviously, because if you're training the dogs, you've got your own tanks that you have to train them on. 
and Russian tanks run on diesel fuel, whereas the German tanks run on petrol. So they smell different to the dog. So when they used them, the dogs didn't act the way that they were supposed to and just, you know, didn't kill any tanks. So that was sort of the mythology behind them. But while I was working on the book, I read, shoot, I I wish I remembered the name of it. I can look it up afterwards and if anyone's interested, email it to you guys. Maybe you can put it in the show notes or something. But um, I read a, a, a uh, German soldier's memoir or diary. It was really a journal or a diary that letters that he was sending back to his wife. Uh, he wasn't on the northern front. He was on the southern front. And I found him fascinating. And he really helped me write like, for example, uh, the goat herd's character. Um, but he was, he talks about these dogs in his journal and he was terrified of them. And it kind of made me think, hmm, actually, you know, the conventional wisdom, the conventional mythology is that these things didn't work at all. But as is often the case with convention, conventional wisdom, maybe that's not exactly true. Maybe as terrible as they were on a humanitarian level, on a military level, maybe they actually worked because apparently the German tank drivers were really frightened. And he, he describes them as German shepherds mm. in it, which is, which I've also found particularly interested, interesting because mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a common breed at all in the Soviet Union. Yeah. You never think but, of as being a common breed there. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, one great thing about being a fiction writer is that the mythology, you can just go with the mythology, <laughs> you know, regardless, of, regardless of what the reality or the truth is. And nobody really knows, I don't think, but. Well, I can understand a soldier being scared of these suicide bomber dogs, which is yeah. what they were. I mean, nobody wants to get blown up. And you see a dog that you're trained, you know, most people are trained to, to love dogs and be all about dogs. And then you see one coming with a vest on and then, ex- and, you know, explodes in front of people's faces. Yeah, you're going to get scared whether you're in a tank or not. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a good point about being trained to love dogs. Apparently, um, uh, you know, the Germans had, you know, love of animals was a strong part of their culture in general. So... Mm-hmm. Well, that, and that one soldier point. basically risked his life to go to deck when when he was tied to the tree. They right. sent a whole team out to to get him. Right, right, because the captain loved dogs. Them. Yeah, because he just happened to love dogs. So you know, but that, you know what? That, that totally would have been me too. If I, if I saw a dog stuck out there, I would have been like, "Hey guys, let's." Let's do something. Yeah. He's a dog. I've already discussed this, and I'm going to be one of the first to go in the zombie apocalypse because I'm going to be too preoccupied with protecting the dogs. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, everything I'm else to do myself. <laughs> well, and and you know, I was I was listening to some of your, I guess, the past couple of weeks. You were talking about it a little bit on your podcast, and um, you had mentioned this this this, which I would completely agree with you, Diana. Uh, you had mentioned that 
for you, it's like the, the dog doesn't have, really have a choice. So mm -hmm. that it's like dogs and children, you know, those are the, those are the things that, you know, that's probably why they're so emotionally devastating when you see terrible things happening to them in literature or on film or what have you. Um, and that's kind of what I put in, in sort of the, the dissident's mouth. That's sort of the point of view I'm trying to push in that, which is they're innocent by virtue of not having a free will, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, you know, dogs aren't innocent in sort of the classic sense, though they can be quite vicious, but um, where I think in the important emotional level, yeah, they're, they're, they didn't ask it's for it. for a reason, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And for the, the other supporting characters that Jack became, as soon as I, he was introduced, I liked him better than I liked Bobby. I I liked Bob, by the end. I really liked Bobby. I think he grew and matured a lot once he joined the army and started training. And I think he really kind of grew into himself. But once you know you started getting to know Jack, I think that was another character that I texted Diana and I said, Jack doesn't die, does he? Because I can't. No, 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 no. What you text me was Jack doesn't do what I think he's going to do, oh. right? No, okay, I thought, no, that was Bobby. I thought Bobby was going to go towards Japan. I thought he it was going to be another Pearl Harbor moment, movie, movie Pearl Harbor, when they go and drop the I bombs. I didn't see it. <laughs> so, yeah, and, I didn't see the, the Michael Bay one. I, and I thought, oh, God, please don't, don't go to Japan. Like, don't die. Don't, <laughs> like, I don't really like you. But, but don't die. That's awful. Yeah, so when I was getting these texts, I had to be like, okay, which point in the book are you? So I can match up where you are. So I can either <laughs> laugh at you, because um, I'm not telling you. Yeah, the only person I actually give spoilers to is the husband, because if I don't tell him what's going to happen, he'll actually go ahead and Google it. Like, we're watching American Gods right now, and he hasn't read the book. So I refused to tell him things like who Wednesday really was. And he was like, okay, fine. Don't tell me. Pulls out his phone and Googles it for himself. And I'm yeah. like, I love Google. <laughs> I love Google. I love Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I do when I'm watching documentaries or historical fiction movies. I'm like, wait, or not, what, right. what really sense. happened? Are they still alive? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely guilty of the same thing. Well, I think that's part of the fun of historical fiction, where you you learn a little bit as you go. I mean, obviously, the main characters in this book are are fictional, but you learn about Leningrad. So as I'm reading the book, I'm Googling what happened in Leningrad. Um, and I'm learning, okay, this is what actually happened there. So you're learning a little bit as you go, because it's, you know, sparking that cre uh, curiosity. And... So for when you were getting close to the end and you knew obviously that Bobby had to find Karen, otherwise the story couldn't right. go on. How did you work out that they were gonna, gonna find each other? Because I read the scene where he, you know, he sees her and he's at the dinner and he 
goes backstage and I'm sitting here at five o'clock in the morning and my mom comes down and she's sitting next to me on her phone and I read it and I'm like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> like what? Yeah, like, something I, bad just happened, mom. Don't. I, I knew that it was going to be a, um, uh, uh, one of those summits. Uh, and like I had the, I had the basic premise of it laid out. I knew that, you know, before, before I set out to write the book, I knew that Bobby, or rather before I, before I set out to expand it beyond just the first chapter, I knew that, that there was the, the, I knew about the, the, the trans Siberian or the, the Alaska Siberian, um, um, ferry route. Uh, I knew that that was a potential way to get an American into Russia and to get an American out of Russia. And I knew that these summits were occurring and were occasionally occurring between American officials and Soviet officials in, in Siberia. Um, so I had an idea that that was ultimately how they were going to meet and how Karen was going to be offered a way to escape uh, Russia. But there's a big difference between knowing that sort of general skeleton outline and then knowing exactly how the timing would work out and how the motivations would work out that would allow them to meet in this, in this very coincidental manner. Uh, at the same place at the same time. Um, so, uh, and, and to be honest, I, I like to write that way because um, it, keeps, it keeps me engaged as a writer because I kind of don't know exactly what's gonna happen next or what the next chapter is going to be. I know where it has to get to, but I don't necessarily know how it's going to get there, if that makes sense. Well, that was a really hard moment to to read because at that point you're to, you're really invested in Karen, or at least I was. You're really invested in Karen and Peter, and you know, and he's how how old was he? He was he wasn't that much older than Karen. He was what nineteen? Yeah, Peter's nineteen. So when when Bobby and Karen first meet. Karen's 15 and I think Bobby's 17 because he's sort of this boy genius who goes to college early. Um, and, and then he graduates college at 19 and, um, uh, or maybe 18, I think it's 18. And then Petter is, is 19 when he's drafted. So then, but of course that's two years later. So, so Karen's 17, over the course of the of the book and Petter's 19 and I think Bobby's 18 at that point although Bobby I may be misremembering Bobby may be 19 Bobby's either 18 or 19 so um Petter and Bobby are about the same age uh but they just have a completely different outlook on life and uh, uh experience yeah, there's absolutely, certainly more absolutely. of a maturity with uh, with Petter as opposed to to Bobby. I mean, you really see that in the cultural differences. Where, I mean, Petter, I kept thinking he was in his early twenties, early to mid twenties, 
even right. though, as you said, he's 19, um, just because of what he's been through. Yeah, and and that's another thing that fascinated me is is uh, when when I was studying Latin America, you know, I was tangentially studying places like Cuba and um, it, 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 you know, this idea how, how people manage to survive in totalitarian regimes. It's, there's a very specific mentality that defense mechanism that you, you seem to have to have. And um, so I was really interested in exploring that. Okay. Petter's obviously an extremely bright kid. How does someone as bright, as switched on to the world as he clearly is manage to sort of shut it all down and survive in a place where expressing yourself can get you killed, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, especially with Russia coming up with, um, in the news so much more re uh, in recent weeks. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, this, it's a culture, even though we're so familiar with it in so many ways, um, since World War II, it's still so very foreign to us culturally. So it's it's really interesting hearing you you talk about getting into that mindset of the totalitarian regime and, and whatnot. And I feel like what, what you just said about how people learn to survive. I think the character that kind of summed that up perfectly was Duck's owner. Yeah. He figured it out. He knew that he couldn't make waves and he just kind of like kept his head down and did his job, but he knew what was going on. Yeah. And, and, and he was a really important character for me as well, because I felt like there had to be someone in the book who demonstrated what was, I hate to use this word, but what was positive about totalitarian Russia? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is a character who could never have achieved what he achieved under the czars because he was a peasant. Mm -hmm. And he just happened to be the, the, the right person to become a pediatrician under, you know, communist and then Stalinist Russia. And he recognized, he's, he's smart enough to recognize that he owes his position to the communist regime. But he's also smart enough to realize that it's completely fucked. And, you know, if, if you were in that, like, how would you feel about it? If you were in that position, you know, it, it, oof. It would, it would be rough. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, you know, there's really nothing you can do. Like, you could protest and you could say you it's wrong, but then you can kill. Yeah, you just end up like like one of these people. I mean, it's... Mm. Yeah, I mean, unless you're willing to actually give up everything that you have, it's yeah. you keep your head down and, and push through. Right, unless you're willing to martyr yourself, which you know, plenty of really very courageous people were willing to do that. But yeah, 
But yeah, it's it's like the character. I mean, he had a family to consider. You can't necessarily be a martyr when you've got a kid and a wife and and people who depend on you. Yeah. And another thing that just kind of clicked for me is the one theme I think of your book is each of these characters, Bobby, Pater, I'm going to pronounce his name right from now on, and um, Karen, they're all extraordinary people in their own ways, and they would have probably excelled if they hadn't been sucked into the war, but it kind of stripped them down. It, it took their extraordinariness and and took it all away and forced them to work with whatever they could find to survive. I completely agree with Karen and with Bobby and with Petter if he wasn't growing up in a totalitarian regime. But since he was growing up in a totalitarian regime and he was smart enough to survive in that situation and not not too idealistic to martyr himself, you know, as we just talked about, he probably wouldn't have achieved anything if it wasn't for the war. He probably would have... Probably would have just lived. You know, yeah, he probably would have just... But, you know, what is achievement? I mean, he probably would have found a degree of happiness in the simplicity of life working at his uncle's, you know, lumber mill. Right. And that was kind of his whole theme, right? Of just being happy. That was yeah. his. Like that, and in tr like, that's a very sort of like, wow, the, like almost, you know, Buddhist philosophy that, that he has come to. But it's also sort of a, a survival mechanism for him um, growing up the way that he did. Um, don't worry about things outside of your control. Just try to be happy with what you can control which isn't a whole hell of a lot in Stalinist Russia. Um, but because of the war, um, he actually finds himself in this bizarre position where he discovers that he has this skill that he's actually really quite ashamed of, uh, of killing people uh, that he never would have discovered in, in, if, if, there had never been any sort of war, and he would have he would have grown to old age and died, and never never you know killed anyone in his entire life, and he would have been much happier had that occurred. Um, but you know he comes to discover that he's actually kind of turned on by it in a in a very shameful way, um, and. Uh, you know that's that's something. Working, I've 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 been blessed to be able to work in in you know in 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 a profession uh, that has allowed me as well to to meet people that I never would have met in my everyday life otherwise. Uh, you know people who are military heroes or, you know, uh, uh, you know, highly decorated uh, secret service agents or what have you, just because I've been fortunate enough to work on films that are based on their lives or their stories. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to talk to people with very interesting, unique experiences 
and this experience of someone discovering that they like to fight and like to kill is something that has always hit like in the back of my mind it's like ooh, that's that's kind of fascinating and and it probably goes back to what I was describing as one of the one of the things that influenced me at the beginning in the first place, which was this book of of propaganda pieces. I mean, in a lot of ways, those were the themes of those little articles on from from Pravda was all these very simple people who, you know, when you break it down, become soldiers and actually discover they're really fucking good at it. And, and I like how that had an effect on uh, Karen too. And in fact, one of the areas that I highlighted in the book, because there's there are multiple passages in the book that I highlighted and marked. Um, but uh, you know, the one the, the one paragraph where because um, in the book she asked people, "What makes you happy?" And basically, I think I might be paraphrasing. I might be getting the specific right. question wrong. And I love how she comes to a realization uh, where she's like, she asks a lot of people that question. Um, you know, or what they wanted, I should say. And she's she always thought of it as a trick to get to know someone, a way to move beyond small talk. But now she was realizing that wasn't her fascination with the question at all. She realized that she asked because she was truly curious. She wanted to know what others wanted because she wasn't sure herself. And yeah, and then her realization, I think, you know, right there, I mean, not only does that have an effect on her, um, in general, but it has an effect where it, I think in that, those two paragraphs, because then she goes on to talk about what she doesn't want. I think that's really where you see her grow up and, you know, the light switch happens where she goes from childlike Karen to more adult Karen. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would agree I would with agree. that. I think, I that, think that that, that I'm glad that you point out that because to me that is her that is, that is central to her transformation over mm -hmm. over the course of the novel and it doesn't necessarily take her to doesn't necessarily take her to sort of a traditional happy place it doesn't take her to a place where um, um, she finds joy in sort of tra traditional American values at all. But well, we do have, they are the undesirable, so I don't expect yeah. them to have, <laughs> the from the title right. right there, they're not gonna right. have happy endings. But but she does have a chance for that. I mean, she does have a chance to, to mm -hmm. sort of become the, the, the typical happy American wife, so to speak, mm -hmm. of, of, you know, 1940s wife, right? And she, and she rejects it. Um, not out of some desire for, you know, uh, 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 social revolution, but in in a in a in a sort of in, first of all because of her love for Petter, and and there is a larger altruistic purpose to it because she does want to do what she can to try and 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 save Russia, and then. By, by extension in America, mm -hmm. but also uh, there's there's a level of nihilism to it as well, where it's where you know both she and Petter come to discover like she's been working her whole life or not her whole life, but the beginning of the novel is working so hard to save her life, mm -hmm. and 
what you just quoted is is her first step in reaching her her conclusion later in the book where she begins to realize well, why why am i working so hard to save myself what is so special about me mm-hmm. as compared to all of these other people who are dying all around me on a constant basis you know why is it so important that i survive as a, as compared to try to help who i can when i can and if i die so be it mm-hmm. you know that that's in a way that's a very freeing thought for her it is yeah but it's also a very you know it's not it's it's like i don't want to be that character i don't want to be karen i admire her but i certainly don't want to be her you know yeah and in a lot of ways i think that's a very common um when somebody becomes a soldier that's kind of a thought process you have to go through is why am i so special um one of the future books once i get this one actually edited and published um the next book you know talking about really focusing on the um soldiers uh, it's world war ii era for the next one as well and yeah uh, i'm actually going to be doing dealing with um the italian americans oh cool yeah great it it is yes and you know i had some conversations with my husband about this concept like I actually sat down with him and I was like, all right, before you went out to, because he went to Afghanistan and to Iraq, I was like, all right, what was it like for you before you went? Well, what were the conversations? What was your, your last minute conversations? What's that talking? It was a lot like what you were saying with why am I so special compared to everybody else? It's, it's that train of thought that you have to get into. And now your book, is it considered young adults? technically or no it is it is not considered young adult um there uh to be honest there was some discussion uh Mm -hmm. with with the publisher as to whether to market it young adult or not Mm -hmm. uh the choice was made not to it was uh they felt that it was um that that the themes were more adult than young adult Mm -hmm. even though it was about younger kids mm-hmm. um, and and just to, I, I've got a comment on the Italian American World War II uh, comment because have you seen the the Ken Burns documentary on World War II um, yes I want to say yes there's there's one real person in there that he he talks about who and, and, and maybe I'm coming out of left field. Maybe it wasn't an Italian-American, but I, I could have sworn it was, it was an Italian-American kid who was drafted and sent to Italy and fighting mm-hmm. an Italian campaign. Uh-huh. And, you know, Ken Burns, he, one of the things that's great about him is, or one of the things he's famous for is all these letters that he uses as, as, as part of his documentary. So he has all these letters that this kid wrote home to his mm-hmm. Italian-American family. And... Um, they're like, oh, it's fantastic. The food is great. We're hanging out on the beach in Italy. You know, I've never- I love so World War II letters. Love all this, All this, like, oh, things are fantastic. Mom, you wouldn't believe it. You know, you wish you were here, but with me, you know, that, that kind of a, of, a, of a letter that he's writing home and he's writing letter after letter after letter. 
And the point that Ken Burns makes, or that the narrator makes, I guess, mm-hmm. is uh, he starts to hit each of the places that this kid was stationed and mm-hmm. was sent to. And they were the most hellish, nightmare places in Italy that anyone could have. And he, and he was sent to them like one after another. Mm-hmm. And ultimately he was killed. And the clear point was this kid was going through hell. And yet every letter that he was sending home just to like keep his parents from worrying too much about him. Mm-hmm. It was like incredibly vivacious, like, oh, things are fantastic. I love Italy, <laughs> you know, and, and it, I don't know, that story, whew, that, that, that got to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, going through, um, one of the things I've been doing, I've done for research off and on is going and li- reading through the letters. Love reading through the letters. Okay. That's the only way in the story to keep those characters still on the side, you know, mindset of everybody because um, they don't just disappear. And you have this interesting perspective because it's similar to what we're doing now with like Muslim Americans where um, there's stories of uh, soldiers who their kids and their parents aren't citizens. And they're up for promotion and they're like, oh, hey, yeah, no, you can't get the promotion because your parents aren't a citizen. They're an enemy alien. So you can't have this. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of similarities there. Well, what can you tell us anything about the sequel? Um, (laughs) Sure. I mean, now, let me say before you get into it, I am a little worried because I had this whole nice, happy ending set in my mind about what happened to Karen and, and, and Petter. And like another friend of mine, I don't know if you remember meeting her at the Literary Festival, Antonia, she read the book too. And right. she and I had a full discussion about what we thought was going to happen to them because we know what happens in Stalingrad. So I am worried. I'm just going to let, I'm leaving that out there. Well, I will say that uh, I have been shocked to discover that there are people who, who there, there were Soviets who survived from 1941 to 1945 in, in, in the military and, and fought the entire way through. I, I honestly, I thought that would have been completely impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this uh, uh, great, oh shoot, what is it called? Um, there's a series of little short documentaries. Um, and I think I've put, a, I think I've put links to a couple of them in my, in my blog on Goodreads, but uh, there are these little short interviews of, of people who fought or not necessarily fought, but for example, there are a couple women who survived Leningrad, um, but various people who sort of survived the war in World War II. And it's, it's really interesting. And there are a couple of, of people who, a couple of, of men, soldiers who, who, you know, and they're sitting there and they've got just, you know, they're very old, obviously, and they've got these just ribbons and medals, you know, just all <laughs> over their chest. And they're, you know, sort of 
telling their their story and often tearing up as as they're telling these horrible things mm -hmm. that they went through. Um, but uh, it's it, I'll again I, you know I can email I I blanking on the name of it, but it's it's a pretty cool because they're very short. They're like five ten minutes long each, so mm -hmm. it's not as if you have to sit there and watch a whole long thing. So there's a possibility so of there's a possibility that she and Petter could survive. Okay. Yes. Well, because the historical note that's like right across from the last sentence of the story is not very promising. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I kind of, you know, I when I text Diana and I said that, you know, that wasn't the ending I was expecting. She was like, "Well, Google Stalingrad, World War II. and I, I, you know. Kid, so I forgot to text you back. But what I was going to say is, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that they died. You know, I'm not assuming that they lived happily ever after. But at least they were together. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, the, I, the reason that I put that note in there was because I, it, it was important to me that the reader feel what what Karen feels at that point that. Karen makes that decision with the belief that she will probably die. You know, she's not making it with some sort of, she's not naive, let me put it that way, when she makes the decision. Um, now that said, that doesn't mean that she actually dies, but she doesn't make the decision with the belief that perhaps she'll survive. Yeah, she's not the same Karen she was in the right. beginning of the book where she was self-serving and it's all about what she wants right then and there. Um, this is a much more worldly Karen. Right. Right. Well, there's, you, know, you can only see so much before you can't go back to who you were. I mean, if, if Bobby had found her when she was still in Leningrad or when she decided that she wanted to escape, she probably would have gone with him without, you know, or even yeah. when she first met Petter, she would have mm -hmm. gone with him and left Petter to die. For sure. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, imagine, imagine Karen, even then, coming back to the United States and being told like, okay, go and, you know, play the cello and, you know, maybe raise some money for war bonds. I'm like, after what she had been through, mm -hmm. what would her life in America really be like? Yeah. She, had, she imagines it. She fantasizes about it. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, I mean, she is, she will not be able to relate to anyone that she meets. And, mm -hmm. and at least, at least with the choice that she made, every single person she meets will immediately relate to her. Mm -hmm. Granted, that might be a very short period of life, but at least they can all look at each other and know exactly that. And shared experience, I mean, that's part of the reason that she falls in love with Petter is that, is, is that discovery of shared experience that she feels like she's been missing in her life. Well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just, I was just agreeing. So, although oddly, you know, the one person who perhaps eventually could is is Bobby. You know, and 
as soldiers return, but as a woman at that time in America. Well, I think she ended up going through a lot more than what Bobby went through. I mean, yes, he went through the sure. whole thing, yeah, but the what she went through in Leningrad, I think, was so much harsher than what anything that he had to deal with. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But at least, at least he had a reality check of, of you know, a certain degree of, of mortal experience, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly more so than, than any woman that she would meet going back to the United States at the time. Um, Absolutely. I think that she probably could have found, you know, she probably could have found satisfaction working with the OSS, but um, for various reasons that will also become apparent in the, in the sequel, that ain't exactly a, a picnic either. Um, well, then when you mentioned that in the book, and you, at that point, you don't know, you're assuming she's going back. I got so mad. I was like, these people, this government is going to take this girl, this 17 year old girl who's been through hell. She watched her father got eaten by other people. And she had to go through all of this. She escaped death how many times? And all they're going to do is turn her into a spy. And and work her right back into the machine. I got so mad. He's an asset. Well, you'll 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 enjoy uh, getting mad about what happens to Bobby <laughs> in the second book. Then so you're gonna come back on the show when we read the second one. <laughs> All right, absolutely. And Michelle's it. probably gonna scold you then too. You're gonna need a big bottle of brandy for that one. <laughs> We're so welcoming here. <laughs> we were, you've been warned. We, we were nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we could probably talk for another hour, but um, I believe we have hit our hour mark. So, um, so thank you so much, Chad, for coming on. I had such a great time talking to you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I, it was very enjoyable. And um, so we'll definitely, as soon as that second novel comes out, let us know, and we'll make that our book of the month. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Have a good night, everyone. Bye. Join us next week. Um, We're going to have the president of the Women's National Book Association. (gasps) It's going to be a good one. (laughs) Bye. Bye.